Welcome to this week's Mount Washington Avalanche Center weekly, bi-weekly outreach podcast. This week I've joined with the lead snow ranger, Frank Harris, and we have special guests, Patrick Scanlon from CVA Backcountry. But I want everyone knows Frank. I want to want to talk to Patrick for a second here. Um, tell me uh, your history with the White Mountains, your connection a little bit about what you do up at CVA. Right on. Well, it's great to be here, Andrew. Your shop is awesome. It's cool to be sitting in the coffee grinding room right now, drinking a fresh brew of Ski the White's coffee. Um, I grew up in New Hampshire and uh, for, you know, I went to UNH and for a while I was a um, employee of the Appalachian Mountain Club. So my time and, you know, with backcountry skiing in the Whites really started as the Tux caretaker for a couple years. And um, after that, I moved on to work at Carabasa Valley Academy. It's a U.S. ski and snowboard um, gold club. And there I run a um, backcountry skiing program. So that's specific to high schoolers. We do um, backcountry ski and ski mountaineering training and avalanche education um, with those students. And that's been uh, great for me for the past five years. And then I fill in here, I guide for uh, EMS climbing school uh, in the summer as a rock guide and then do a little bit of uh, ski guiding for them as well. And um, most recently working a little more with the White Mountain Avalanche Education Foundation and Frank and trying to do some outreach and education stuff. Tell the uh, listeners where some of the uh, places that you go with the students at CVA. That's the most exciting part. It is the most exciting part. Yeah, they're um, uh, being out of school with so many great resources in the ski industry. We, we are able to travel uh, quite extensively. We spend time in La Grave usually every other year. This year, with uh, everything going on, we won't be doing that. Um, we've been to Alaska. We've been to Jackson Hole. We've been to BC. So we expose them to some big environments. And while we're doing that, we're also able to partner with some pretty cool uh, local guides and educators, and that's really adds to the depth of the experience that they're getting, and it, it kind of teaches them a lot about mentorship and the importance of like going out with with different people and people who know the area that you're skiing in, and um, and and getting to know a place through the eyes of a local. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that's the kind of mentorship I think we were talking about earlier that people were asking about at Esau. Where do you where do you meet? Um, other folks to ski with and people that are more experienced than you. Um, and there is no easy answer. There's a lot more new skiers than there are mentors available. Um, I think particularly, you know, this year. So that's a tough thing to answer. I, uh, part of it, I, I liked, uh, the response from Grant. I think he was talking about the difference between coaching and mentorship, you know, mentorship would be like a close personal relationship with someone that exists over time. Actually, that was Don Sheriff's point. Whereas coaching, you can get some coaching from other people as long as you know that they're experienced and skilled in the area that you're trying to, you know, brush up on or learn about. So um, hopefully folks will be finding those opportunities and finding some local wisdom as they go into this uh, season coming up and recognize that there's a lot of things to learn about like any activity, um, you know, backcountry skiing, it's technical. There's a fair amount of equipment involved. Um, there's a lot of nuances in just the gear and travel techniques. And then once you add avalanche terrain travel to the mix um, and the local, um, you know, local wisdom, 
um, be that as as it is, um, that's another another layer for sure. Yeah, there's there's no there's no right way to get introduced and no wrong way in in the sense that you're gonna have to get the experience, you're gonna have to get the, the knowledge, try to do both, but like you, you have to go all in on it, and it's not something that you do a course and you're done. It's a lifelong educational process of of educate of avalanche awareness and avalanche um, savvy, but finding someone that can take you out could be a friend. But if you can't get a, you know, if you don't know anyone and you're really green to this and, um, you can always get a guide. That's like a really great place to start. Someone like Patrick can come, can take you out and you just absorb as much as possible. It's everything from, from trip planning and, and their experiences and, and pulling some of that. And then from there, it's what direction do you want to go? Yeah, I'd echo that. And I think, you know, getting a guide can be expensive. And what's great about it, though, is that you, you're you really investing in yourself. You're investing in the knowledge and you're paying somebody who, who does it for a living usually and, and really knows what they're talking about. And through that experience, especially if you're going out with a group that, you know, maybe you're not doing a private, maybe you're going into a, a guided group that's a, a bunch of people from different backgrounds, those people coming into your class might have you know, the same drive and the same um, attitude towards uh, learning about the sport as you. So that could be a great way to meet somebody who's kind of at your level um, in terms of where you're at in the sport and where you want to go. And it, it could open up partnerships for you, can open up those coaching opportunities for you. And through that, that's, you know, that's where you really can start to find mentorship in certain people is just spending time with lots of different people uh, in the outdoors. Yeah. So talking about mentorship and some questions you had from the Eastern Snow, an avalanche avalanche workshop that was last week, virtually a three-day event. Um, what were some of the highlights of that for, for you, Frank? Well, I, um, I found a, a bunch of it really, really useful and enlightening. Um, I found Don Sheriff's presentation on wind slabs to be um, particularly relevant uh, to me personally, just because wind slabs are such a huge part of our day-to-day forecasting, and the um, you know the vagaries of that avalanche problem type, um, you know, it was fun to see or really enlightening to see Don's presentation, where um, he spent a lot of time. Um, outside our area, particularly in at higher elevations and Alaska and the Himalayas. And I know that, uh, you know, having skied in high mountains, western mountains myself, like it, it's not all blower powder in the aspen trees, right? Like as soon as you get up into the steeper zones and the steeper couloirs, really um, the terrain there can look an awful lot like here. Um, we have, you know, a maritime snowpack that's heavily wind affected and also heavily affected by the cold as well. So um, seeing his presentation and seeing his analysis of, of our terrain, I'd sent him a bunch of pictures and some case studies of avalanches and avalanche types that we have here. Um, it was it was really useful. Um, if you don't know Don, he um, was a caretaker here at Hermit Lake for a year and then on construction crew with the AMC. This is in the late 80s. Um, 
I was living out west at the time being a ski bum, but he um, then moved from here. He moved west and hit skiing hard and was a heli ski guide, a patroller, um, been snow safety at a resort, I believe, as well. Um, now he runs American Avalanche Institute, which is one of the two big providers of avalanche courses in the country. And he teaches a lot of classes and he's in the field a lot. Um, so, and he lives, uh, you know, he lives adjacent to another poster child for wind slabs, which uh, in the Tetons, particularly in the park, he lives in Dregs. So um, he, you know, casts a lot of light on our wind slabs. So that was a highlight for me. Um, it's kind of a long way of talking about one of my highlights, but I did want to also mention, um, you know, Bruce was awesome, um, does a great job essentially boiling down avalanche travel and avalanche safety. And he he's always done so in his books. He did a great job of that when he was director at the UAC. But, you know, in snow science, we start digging really deeply into a lot of stuff. And I know the three of us were just talking about the, the origin of avalanches and a lot of, you know, the way early season snowpacks develop and crystal types and all that. And, you know, it was refreshing and a good reminder from him to just hear things like, you know, if you just waited 24 hours to go skiing, you know, you would eliminate 90% of avalanche uh, fatalities in this country. You know, it's it really does get to be that simple. And, uh, you know, we in this room are also have been, you know, involved or very close to involved in avalanches where, you know, we absolutely know we should be waiting for 24 hours, but we don't want the wind to get to the snow. So we get out after it and we try and, you know, tease out a safe line in the terrain and we either get burned or get close to being burned. So, um, you know, we're all subject to these um, pulls, you know, these, these drives that really aren't in line with rational, you know, rational thinking. So um, that was a highlight as well to hear Bruce talk and, and uh, share his wisdom gained over, he was like director, I think, at UAC for 30 plus years. He was like 45 years in the industry. Um, and then the other big, big one for me, well, two big ones, the other speaker, Grant Statham, gave a really amazing accounting of the rescue on Howl's Peak that took the lives of David Lama and um, Jess Ross Kelly and the other Austrian whose name I can't pronounce. Um, it was uh, uh, kind of, uh, as you know, as an IC incident commander for Mountain Rescue here, you know, one of the things we're confronted with is, you know, rescuer safety during a loading event and when, you know, someone gets involved in an avalanche when things are actively changing and getting worse, like when loading. These guys had to go and figure out how to recover the bodies of three people who did not have avalanche beacons directly below the 5,000-foot um, face of Howl's Peak. And um, they ended up using some pretty ingenious methods, including searching with probes while they were suspended from the helicopter on a on a short haul cable, so 100 feet down and ready to have the pilot snatch them out of harm's way if another avalanche occurred. 
Um, they went at that for two or three days, during which they got another uh, call for another avalanche somewhere else that they had to go respond to and uh, pick two people up and dig, dig someone out even, I think, um, and then return to this rescue. Um, they spent those days, uh, you know, basically strategizing how to keep themselves safe while simultaneously dealing with media pressure from a thousand different, like literally a thousand different media requests um, coming in on, on the incident. So they searched and searched using a um, basically spot probing was the best that they could do. They had thrown some beacons out near what they thought were the bodies during an early recon mission that turned up to be not accurate enough. So at the end of the day, they sorted out how to have a dog and his handler on the end of the long line searching the debris cone. And um, with the dog, obviously, is valuable and uh, had the dog on a tether and a harness as well. And they were just about to pull the plug on the entire operation. Um, the Grant called the pilot to get him like to, all right, you need to, let's, let's pull the plug. This is not going to happen. We'll get the bodies in the spring. And just then the pilot said, wait a minute, hold on. I think the dog's on to something and saw the dog's tail wagging or seeing an early alert and, uh, you know, boom, 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 found, found the folks, found, found the guys, uh, in quick succession right at the end of that. So really, uh, harrowing and, um, interesting to see how, um, the John Ross Kelly, you know, he's first guy to summit K2 and Jess Ross Kelly's dad, he put all the pieces together from some recovered, um, cameras and GoPros and stuff of those guys climb, um, found the geotags and, and the pictures and discovered ultimately that those guys had done a, done a first ascent, um, kind of a variation or a route adjacent to M16, which is a super hard mixed climb on that peak and summited and they're on their way down when they triggered the avalanche. I think so. they called it the King line. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was one of my highlights as well. One of the points that Grant hammered home a little bit, and I think it's applicable here, is that you know if there's any ice climbers listening, that if you're climbing and you're in or around avalanche terrain, you know please wear avalanche rescue gear. And a lot of the gear out there is it's come a long way. It's you can get really lightweight stuff and still have the ability to enact a rescue or, or be searchable. That's you know the biggest thing. And from a from Frank's point of view as a rescuer, you know, it's important for him to be able to get in and get out pretty quick. Um, and so if you, if you have a, if you have avalanche beacon on, that's, you know, monumentally easier for, to do if you're buried. Yeah, that's totally true. And I think with, as a climber and former guide, I know that, um, I'm ashamed to say I did leave that avalanche rescue gear behind from time to time, either because as an independent guide, I didn't have enough for my clients. I couldn't afford it or, you know, all the all the shop gear was out in an avalanche class, and the reality is, is you know, you can trigger trigger a, something on the approach to Pinnacle or on the approach to one of these climbs, and find someone just shallowly buried, and you're not going to know where they are. And um, the point I've I've come full circle in my climbing, and just acknowledge that a beacon really doesn't weigh anything. It's not that big a deal to wear that. And then you ask yourself, okay, well, do I need a shovel? Okay, well, maybe maybe the person, maybe your partner's killed by trauma and you didn't need the shovel. 
But you're going to need that shovel to dig a shelter. If you're benighted, you're going to need the shovel to dig a flat ledge to load the litter. Or you could use your shovel to melt water, you know, if you're really in a in a pickle or if you had to get be overnight, you know, if you were benighted, you could dig a trench shelter. So that seems like kind of a, a very useful piece of gear that weighs, what, 12 ounces? If you get kind of a small one that's, you know, not super useful but still gets the job done. And, and at that point, the only thing left is a probe. So you just put in the shortest, lightest carbon fiber probe into your pack, into the appropriate pack, and, and there you go. You got your kit. Um, certain packs are better for carrying that. I think that might be one of the holdups for people carrying that gear. Um, is it, you know, shovel blades pack better in a snow safety or a ski pack, you know, with a with a tools pocket, whereas a climbing pack doesn't really have that. So that's something that the industry could look at, or you could just still get your climb done with a clamshell pack, honestly. Like, it's not that big a deal to use a, a ski pack for climbing. Drape the rope on the outside, and you're good to go. Um, now, to, to touch on that, you can now get just avalanche safety packs that just hold, you know, your probe. Beacon, I mean, your, your probe, your shovel, and then you can also put in, like, some first aid stuff and have that sit in the black hole mountaineering pack and right. be, be separate but be easy to access. And, again, you're thinking, like, we're on Mount Washington, nothing is too far away. So if there's something you could assist on or if someone else got caught in an avalanche, or you, know, yeah. you could be of service, whereas there's not much you can do if you don't have the tools. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There are multiple times when I was caretaking where I'd be on one side of the ravine and there was an incident or an accident that happened on the other side and it didn't take that long for me. And that was part of my job, but it didn't take that long for me to get from one side to the other and help out. And it was a yeah, good think, resource. Good thing to think about this year. You know, people need to ski, uh, ski kind, and that includes helping each other out and helping each other out in the event of an incident. Um, you know, it's probably will be the most satisfying thing you, you did much more satisfying than, than skiing that line is going and help somebody with a boot top fracture or um, just an injury, dislocated shoulder. Or they were avalanched, God forbid. And, uh, you know, I know from experience that you it need, you need a lot of shovelers to effectively uh, get somebody out and rescue them. And I uh, certainly need a first aid kit if you're going to really make someone comfortable while you're dealing with with uh, with an injury. Um, all good stuff. For Esau, I missed it. Someone like myself missed it. Yeah, um, it will be. It was recorded. Everyone but Grant's uh, talk was recorded, including the panel night, which I didn't discuss with a lot of stimulating conversation and Q&A. That'll be... Um, that will be put out soon. Um, I'm not sure exactly what format, but we'll we'll broadcast it pretty widely. So it'll be on the you know Mount Washington Avalanche Center dot org, or um, the Esaw dot org, or both, and possibly I'd probably like to get it on YouTube. Yeah, and also we uh, before Esaw we did a um, intro to back into. <clears throat> or intro to avalanche awareness night as well. We hosted that and that is that is currently available online for people if you missed that Zoom talk and that's on the Esau website. Okay, great. And uh, so I'll link to that as well. And we also uh, spent some time with folks' questions that we weren't able to answer during the live talk on that first night. Um, 
So a lot of the guides that or the guides that were uh, involved have have answered some of those questions. I've answered some, and we'll post those um, as sort of an FAQ um, section um, very soon as well. So I look outside, and it's snowing right now. I don't know how much snowfall is up on the mountain, but it feels very much like winter and. We already had our first sort of onset of winter in October and then another warming, and now it feels like full-on winter again um, as we approach the early season. What are we, what are we thinking? What's, um, I guess, first of all, what's new this year up at the Avalanche Center? I know we touched on some of the stuff last year. Um, as far as resources for other potential you know, skiers that want to get out, we talk about checking the conditions, um, as much as possible. We, we're looking at the story of the winter and um, in early season, we're watching things fill in and we're trying to keep tabs on the snowpack and what's happening. Um, a couple things on that, uh, Hermit Lake, is that data available to the public now? It is, yeah. We were just having to go through some shenanigans to recalibrate the snow depth sensor. It seems to be recording um, accurately now. Um, We'll know once we have the manual snow plot daily um, to compare. We'll make sure that it's on that it's tracking. I was looking at it the other day, and it did seem to roughly line up with what they're getting for rain and um, on the summit. So, so that's a good sign. Um, that will be um, on our website, which sidebar will be um, new this year. So our website's getting a big facelift uh, thanks to uh, support from. Fodor and the foundation, as friends of Tucker Intervene, and the foundation and um, our um, the National Avalanche Center folks have we have a shared avalanche platform now. So the idea is that the tech behind our website, instead of each avalanche center having to do the yeoman's work to keep that thing up and running, there's essentially some programming. Um, you know, we're joining forces and have a, a programmer who they've beta tested at the Sawtooth and some other places last year. So we'll have a, a little bit new look and feel for our website on the front end that you'll be seeing. Not a tremendous amount of changes other than on the back end um, for us, but you, uh, the big change for users will be two things. One will be the danger rating by elevation. So we're going to have um, you know three different zones and each of those will have its own danger rating. And then we'll have the um, forecast danger rating outlook for the following day by elevation as well. So that will hopefully assist folks making a decision about um, which day they choose to recreate is how that often works out. You know, it's like, do I want to go today or what's the trend? Is it going to be more stable today or tomorrow? So that should help folks. We've done that in the past in a narrative way, um, but hopefully the the graphic will help. So um, when do you when do you officially start forecasting? What determines that? Um, that's determined really. Um, there's a lot to that decision. Generally, um, not only does there need to be enough snow for folks to recreate on, um, but we also need to be ready. And uh, you know, like. Folks ask us that a lot, and I, I want to love to be able to give people that information. But if we start really early, um, we end up forecasting, you know, through June sometimes. Like we legitimately needed to post forecasts in early June. 
last year and um, we don't really have the manpower to do that. So basically um, the key thing to know is that just because we're not forecasting doesn't mean that there's not snow to play on and it also certainly doesn't mean that we can't have avalanches and we've had people caught and carried an avalanche when there's no danger rating. So really important to know and um, we'll um, this year we have new folks coming on. We're kind. I'm kind of glad personally. We don't have much snow up there. We're just we're not ready yet. Two new employees plus um, just a, a bit of a, a other other things we're trying to work on, like that web the new website. Um, we're not anywhere close to needing to forecast honestly right now. There's just not enough snow. Um, though there's enough snow to, to ski and there's an avalanche even in October, as someone pointed out, someone sent me a photo of a crown and uh, I think the crown was in shoot. Um, the snow there has since melted. Um, certainly small avalanches will happen every year before we start forecasting. Um, we just don't get large avalanches or larger avalanches until the Alpine Garden and Bigelow Lawn is filled in. You know, that's when things really start to go off. Um, operationally, you know, um, we'll start a three-day, um, like a general snow and avalanche um, forecast or bulletin. That'll be our early season product. And I would see that that could easily start happening oper from an operational point of view um, before Christmas if needed. Um, and then we'll move into the daily um, avalanche uh, danger ratings um, as needed after that. It's been in mid-January before when we've uh, before we've done that. Um, and again, operational decisions go into that. If we start forecasting every day and we don't have machine access, then we are kind of hard pressed to to spend enough time in the field to be accurate. And it sounds lazy, but um, really like that daily trip to go up and look during low periods of low visibility, um, it's it's hard. It's hard with the other things we have to do. So um, we love it when we get the snow machines up. Yeah. I was able to take a, a peek at that new format on the website. I think it looks awesome. And I, I would encourage people when that's live to, to spend some time and just get used to that new format. It'll maybe be a little bit of a shock at first. I don't really think so. But what's cool about it to me as somebody who travels um, for skiing is it'll that format will look familiar to you as you go to other areas uh, like the Sierra or um, I'm not sure what other forecast zones Sawt are using that. Sawtooth, Sawtooth. Flathead, um, Idaho Panhandle, I think. Yeah. There's several. So that universal format and symbols and um, everything that's used on the site, you know, that's that's I think great for people to to feel like it's familiar as they're using it across different areas. We're we're hoping too it's going to make some of the information gathering easier, and we're working right now on some custom programming to pull in um, OBS Mesonet site weather data. So. Um, right now, there's we've got to look at NWS and the OBS and a bunch of other places for info, and we're trying to pull that all into one map. So you see each of those mesonet sites, you'll see hopefully our manual snow plots, and then you'll see the automated 
station on the summit and, and Hermit Lake. Um, really want to hopefully pull those, really love to get those manual things in there. I'm not the one doing the heavy lift on the programming, um, but I, I think there's a solution in there either with uh, either in-house or um, there's some snowbound technologies, I think, is is uh, largely responsible for developing the code for that. So it's a bit of a, it's, it's not about digging pits and isolating columns sometimes it's about like <laughs> programming getting it on it well that's a good a good point to bring up is check the website frequently not only for just what's happening your reports learn grab that snowplot data for yourself to help educate you on again this overarching story of what's happening up there so you can know from uh raincrest bob to whatever else is happening with the snowpack but also for events that's another good thing that you guys are doing a good job of. You have a, a Google calendar up there, I believe, that, that lists all the upcoming events, opportunities to uh, hear speakers, do some stuff. I think we're going to try to do some, get some stuff here, some beacon drills in the, in the parking lot and whatever sort of resources that um, any backcountry user can, can use yep. to take advantage of it. Yep. Um, I shared last year and didn't get a lot of buy-in, but I'd really like to make that Google Events calendar open format for anybody offering anything avalanche education related or event related that's, you know, avalanche related. So right now it's only, we've just got two speakers coming up um, scheduled, but keep an eye on that because there's going to be a flurry um, of things posted. Um I, I would guess between Thanksgiving and Christmas as we sort um, through the year's schedule. Um, the virtual format of ESAW showed us the value of, um, you know, this strange new world we find ourselves living in. Um, ESAW has been attended by 175 people typically in the past, kind of maxed out in the, the in-person venue in Freiburg lately in the last few years. This year we had 500 people sign up and about... 375 or 400 people show up so a um, lot of a uh, lot of benefit to that and uh, reduced travel time and all that yeah it's so, way more accessible for people and i think yeah. it's been received really well yeah the next uh you know we actually have a, a talk coming up this monday so really soon um that's with max bond and eric austenberg uh, both from dartmouth college and they're going to be presenting uh their research on climate change and avalanches and specifically i believe their data was collected right here is that true yeah so this is uh this is really interesting to me we don't we don't do much with climate change on our website because at the end of the day you know avalanche we're gonna have avalanches no matter what um whether the climate's warmer or not um so this is interesting because the part of this process was that Max sorted through all our um, danger ratings and our um, snow plot data, so our daily snow data, and he used machine learning, a, a machine learning algorithm to um, forecast our avalanches. And the trick with that is you use like 70% of the data to come up to teach your machine, to teach your algorithm, to come up with the appropriate danger rating. And then you plug in the other 30% of the data to test it. And that's what he did. And he came up with a pretty good, I forget what his accuracy was. It was pretty, it was like 85% accurate. I'm like, oh, geez, yeah. Can you be, can this machine be the fifth snow ranger we need? You know? <laughs> 
So then he took that data and, and looked back at historical data from prior to when there was even an avalanche center and a daily forecast to look at the trends. So what would have been the danger rating in 1972 when the OBS was collecting that data, the weather data, but there was no avalanche forecast. So, you know, it's all it's all hypothetical. It's obviously like a, an interest, you know, just a study. Um, but it'll uh, we'll see how it aligns. And really, if you're interested in that sort of future way of how the world works, you know, I think that's where it's going to be really good. And this guy's an undergraduate, which is pretty amazing. I spoke to his professor who's uh, super impressed by by the work and and his uh, bulldog nature and like just really dug deep. Um, so tune in for that November 30th, right? Um, yep, that's right, from 7 to 8 p.m., 8.30 yep. p.m. Yep, and then another one, right, with Mike Austin and Avalanche Geeks. Do you have that date? Yeah, so Avalanche Geeks presentation on uh, bettering your decision-making in Avalanche Train, I believe, which yeah. is what a great person to talk about that, uh, Mike Austin. That's Thursday, uh, December 10th from 7 to 8.30. Yeah, Mike is a friend of mine I went through some of my ski guides courses with, and we've been on some adventures together skiing as well. Um, and he is uh, running uh, with a IFMGA guide out of Chamonix. They run American-style avalanche classes, so two- and three-day avalanche courses. Um, really turning out a bunch of interesting products, really good graphic product they turned out recently were like these cue cards similar to, you know, the Mike's Backcountry Ski Book, Mike Clellan's drawings. Like it's very reminiscent of those sure. kind of cue card type things. And um, he's, uh, he's a great guy and a, and a good presenter. And he was on this podcast last year and helped us out as a um, intern here at the Avalanche Center, hoping to bring him back here. Um, travel restrictions excluded um, at some point again this year. So looking forward to having Mike and his sense of humor as well. Excellent. Well, lots of good stuff coming up. Again, check the check the website for more details. I'll link I'll link to most of the stuff in the notes and spread the word on this podcast. This is going to be a great way, a great resource to to reach um, all backcountry users. You know, whether you're a climber or skier, um, we'll hopefully have some good stories here and get some more guests. And if you have questions, send your questions along. It'd be great to great to get some topics that people want to hear about. It's an, a bit of an open panel discussion, so you can send those to Andrew at skithewhites.com. That's probably the easiest way. I'll be here recording, and we'll do this. You know, once things get into a rhythm with Winter and and Frank's up there for forecasting with his team, and uh, that way, before you go out, you'll have a little bit of uh, hear a little bit of what happened the week before, what's happening this week, and then maybe a little bit into the future. So thanks both of you to coming uh patrick great to see you um it's great what you're doing with your program over there i wish when i was when i was the, in in high school i had an option to go right down the middle between nordic and alpine and do some of the backcountry and maybe get a, a trip uh a trip across the world that you know didn't involve chasing gates and not really yeah right the on. free skiing <laughs> part of it but yeah. i think it's it's really you know it's it's education and it's a valuable asset yeah, have. thanks. If if you see if anybody sees us out there, um, 
definitely stop and say hi. The kids are pretty shy a lot of times uh, in the mountains with other people, but um, they, they do like talking to people. So definitely say hi in the skin track if you see us. Yeah, they, they ask good questions. I've appreciated them up there in the courtyard asking the right questions. You're clearly doing a, a good job with that crew. Thanks, Frank. All right. Well, thank you guys, and we will talk soon. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks.